Welcome back, everyone. This is Treks to Nowhere. Well, we are now halfway through this second season, and in this episode, I'm going to take you back to February of 2009 for another remote Trek to Nowhere. This time, we'll revisit a small island off of the southern coast of New Zealand. The fall of 2008 was a special time for me. I was starting my second year of graduate school feeling somewhat confident now that I had made it through two semesters successfully. The most difficult coursework of my entire master's program was behind me, and I would now be shifting my focus towards my research project. That summer, I had also carried out my first legitimate lab work of my program spending over three weeks toiling away in negative 36-degree temperatures at the National Ice Core Laboratory outside of Denver. This experience is what ultimately got me hooked on ice core science and what would eventually steer me into a Ph.D. program. I also made friends with several other graduate students that summer that I still work with and call my friends today. Another major event that transpired that summer was that of my thru-hike of the 500-mile Colorado Trail. Now, I've spoken about this experience in previous episodes, but the big takeaway from this hike was that it was my first genuine experience with alpine hiking. This would prove to be an invaluable learning experience for what would eventually become my Pacific Crest Trail thru-hike in 2010. Now, the other big takeaway from this hike was that it was a way to prove to myself that long-distance hiking wasn't simply a one-off experience, and that I did genuinely enjoy the act of it. I had become worried that my 2007 Appalachian Trail through hike was entirely a result of my mental and emotional state at the time, and that it was just a way to clean my proverbial slate. The Colorado Trail hike revealed that I could enjoy a grueling thru-hike over a long-distance scenic trail while also being in a mental state of contentment. This revelation also played a large part in my desire to hike the Pacific Crest Trail just two years later. Now, earlier in 2008, I had also started running. I ran my first road marathon in May in eastern Pennsylvania and then my second back in my hometown in upstate New York at the end of summer. My experiences at these events and the training leading up to them had been so fulfilling that I decided to see if I would have any luck running even further. So in late September, I signed up rather whimsically for an event known as the Vermont 50, a 50-mile trail race located in rural Vermont. Now, I had no idea if it would go well or if I'd even enjoy it, but I did know that I could hike a 40-mile day. I had done it many times on both the AT and the CT, and I figured if I just ran some, I should be able to knock out 50 miles in the 12-hour limit. This single event would ultimately lead me down a path that I still find myself on today, 16 years later. I have now run over 100 ultramarathons and countless other shorter-distance races, ranging from fast and flat road events to arduous and grueling alpine events with over 50,000 feet of elevation gain. 
Now, even with all of these life-changing events that seemed to cluster together within the short time window of my life in 2008, it was one experience at the end of that year that was probably the most transformative of them all. My first deployment to Antarctica. I have certainly spent considerable time over multiple episodes of this series revisiting my Antarctic deployments, but it was this first deployment at the end of 2008 that was ultimately the most impactful. As I've stated so many times before, for as long as I have known, I have wanted to go to Antarctica to set foot on the icy continent. There has always been something just so alluring and curious about this remote and harsh place. I can even recall when I was in my final year of undergraduate studies in the late 90s, I applied for a contractor position at McMurdo Station as an IT specialist, just hoping to spend a season there. And while that position never materialized, it was just 10 years later that the opportunity to go to Antarctica finally arose. In the final months of 2008, I would finally be heading down to the icy continent, and not just to the large diesel cargo hub of McMurdo Station, but out to a very remote field camp located high up on the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. I was set to deploy just after Thanksgiving for what was scheduled to be roughly a two-month deployment to the remote field camp known as Waste Divide. Now again, I have spoken about this a lot in previous episodes, and even more so in the companion text, but in this context, the deployment also served as something of a stepping stone to what would ultimately become an entirely separate adventure. So, while the obvious pinnacle of this deployment would be my time on the ice, and my introduction to proper glaciological fieldwork, I was also quite keen to be stopping over in New Zealand on the way back home. I'm going to pause here for a moment to tell a brief backstory. A specific memory often finds its way into my mind, much like that one song you can't ever seem to forget and find yourself humming decades later. The memory relates to a weekend morning from my childhood. I was maybe 10 years old, and I can recall on this morning laying out a large map of the world on my living room floor and imagining all of the wondrous places I might visit one day. This was a common pastime for me in those early years. On this particular morning, my goal was to try to plant my finger down someplace that I would genuinely like to see in person one day. I wanted the place to be far away, so far in fact that it would almost seem like an imaginary distant land, a far away land of enchantment or something like that. I looked around all over the map seeing many possible candidates, but had a hard time zeroing in on one place. But then I saw it. Way down at the bottom of the map was the island nation of New Zealand. My eyes moved down to its southern island, and I saw the labeled town of Christchurch. I remember thinking that it was an odd name for a town, and wondered if the whole place was just some kind of large cathedral or place of worship of some kind. This is the place, I thought. I want to see Christchurch, New Zealand one day. 
Now, feeling like I was content with my choice, I made the mental note, one day I would visit Christchurch in person, and I began folding up the map. But then, my eyes noticed something else just a bit south from Christchurch. As I followed the border down further south, past the only other labeled town of Dunedin, I noticed a smaller island off of the southern coast. In very small print, this island was labeled Stewart Island. Now, I certainly had my share of remote islands that I wanted to visit, but something about this island was just different. Perhaps it was its proximity to mainland New Zealand, allowing for a more realistic trip there, or perhaps it was its distinctive shape. But for whatever reason, I decided to amend my previous goal. And one day, I would aim to visit Christchurch, New Zealand, but then also make my way down to Stewart Island and spend at least one night on the island. Now keep in mind here that I had no idea if Stewart Island was even inhabited or open to visitors. I only knew that I was drawn to it. So, fast forwarding back to 2008. Every other graduate student in my program that had a previous Antarctic deployment spoke about the wonders of New Zealand and encouraged me to spend as much time as I could there after my deployment, if possible. I asked my advisor if he'd mind if I spent a little time tramping around New Zealand on my way back from the field, and he told me that I will have certainly earned it after two months on the ice. So with that, I bought a few travel and hiking guides for New Zealand and then put my plans on simmer for the next few months that I was deployed. I would have very long days in the field and not a lot of free time for holiday planning, but whatever time I did have, I would browse through those guidebooks to try and set up a very tentative plan. I still remembered my childhood desire to visit Christchurch, and incidentally, by the time I was on the ice, I already technically had, as we all transitioned through the city on our way down. Of course, I didn't really spend any significant time there, as we only transited through. I did, however, forget about my childhood amendment to visit Stewart Island, and it wasn't until one night in my tent at the Waste Divide Field Camp, yes, we slept in tents on the ice, that I flipped to a page in my hiking guidebook and saw that a remote 70-plus mile trail existed on Stewart Island that can be hiked over a several-day period. Stewart Island! I leapt up out of my sleeping bag and remembered that faithful day so many years ago where I made that amended goal to visit Stewart Island. That night, as I continued to pore over the guidebook, I learned that there was not only a 125-kilometer or 78-mile loop trail on the island, but that there was also a small village and a ferry offering transport over from the primary south island of New Zealand. In other words, Stewart Island was open for visitors. From that moment, I knew that upon returning to New Zealand, I was going to make arrangements to not only get over to Stewart Island, but to also thru-hike this unique trail. Now, this trail, known as the Northwest Circuit Track, is considered to be one of the most difficult, rugged, and unforgiving trails of any of the famous trails in New Zealand. Right up my alley, I thought. Now, while I was stationed at the remote camp in Antarctica, I also made a few new friends, 
many of whom were also making plans for some New Zealand travel following our deep field campaign. One of the other Ice Corps drillers, Elizabeth, was also an Appalachian and Colorado Trail thru-hiker. We actually had quite a bit in common, and when she learned of my interest in hiking the Northwest Circuit Track on Stewart Island, she excitedly asked if she could join, as it had been a trail she had been eyeing for some time as well. Of course I agreed and was excited to know I'd have company for such a remote and rugged long-distance trek. And so, my plan was shaping up as such. I would leave the remote Waste Divide field camp at the end of January and return to New Zealand. From there, I would venture out alone for about a week doing some of my own hiking, or tramping as they call it in New Zealand, before eventually making my way down to the southern city of Invercargill. There, I would meet up with Elizabeth and we'd ferry over to Stewart Island together to begin our multi-day hike of the Northwest Circuit Track. At the end of our Antarctic science campaign, when I did finally make it back to Christchurch, New Zealand, there were a few things that I learned very quickly following my two-plus-month deployment. First, I immediately noticed the oppressive humidity. I can recall stepping off of the C-17 military transport plane and being shocked at the apparent thickness of the air. Now, in reality, the humidity was probably only around 50 or 60 percent, but after having spent over two months in the driest place on Earth, it felt like I was swimming through the atmosphere. During my deployment, I had developed multiple cracks on my hands and fingers from the exceedingly dry air, and contrary to popular belief, wounds need moisture to heal. I went weeks at the camp with constantly sore, sensitive, and bleeding fingertips. My hands had the appearance of those of a 90-year-old man, and no amount of hand lotion would remedy the problem. Add in the ceaseless exposure to the sun, remember of course it doesn't ever set during the austral summer, and my skin was absolutely ravaged. Of course, I was also perpetually caked in 100 SPF sunblock, which not only served to add a disturbing layer of false skin, but also happened to pull out whatever remaining moisture I did have in my real skin through some kind of perverse and disturbing diffusional fractionation process. And while bacteria weren't really a problem to contend with in such a sterile environment, Having access to a working shower only a few times per month in the field led to a permanent feeling of being encased in some kind of inverse still suit. When I did eventually arrive back in New Zealand, it only took about 48 hours for all of my wounds and cracked hands to heal. It was truly remarkable. I remember walking over to the botanical gardens and being overwhelmed by the visual stimuli. For over two months, most of what I had seen around me was just snow and ice in all directions, and with no smells at all. And now, I was walking through a vivid garden with countless smells and colors, as though the saturation were turned up to eleven. I suffered from quite a few intense headaches those first few days upon my return. Now going back to the topic of sun exposure, I also learned two key things upon my return to New Zealand. The well-documented hole in the ozone layer of Earth's atmosphere 
essentially hovers over New Zealand. And while this hole has repaired itself to some extent since the Montreal Protocol banned the use of HCFCs and other ozone-depleting substances, it is still very present over New Zealand today. What this all means is that the sun exposure in New Zealand can lead to very rapid UV damage to your skin and burning. I have a relatively high tolerance to sun exposure, but I learned quickly that even with sunblock, it is incredibly easy to develop second-degree burns after just a few hours of exposure. Australia and New Zealand have some of the highest rates of skin cancer in the world for a reason. Another thing that I learned upon returning to New Zealand was just how much my body had truly missed the darkness of night. While deployed, I did my best to adjust to the 24-hour sun, and while sleeping, I of course wore an eye mask. But even with these measures, I never truly felt rested. I would sleep each night okay, but after just a few weeks, I began to notice that I was always tired. At the time, I just chalked it up to the long and arduous work days, but the lack of quality sleep very likely played a large role in that fatigue. When I did eventually arrive back in New Zealand, it was still mid-afternoon and the sun was still up. A group of us from the Waste Divide camp all agreed to meet up down the road from our hotel at a local pub to celebrate a successful season with some fresh food and a pint. The celebration was wonderful. We sat outside in shorts and t-shirts and ate food that was more delicious than I thought possible. But then the sun set, the stars began to emerge, and I was overcome with the most profound feeling of urgency. It was almost as though my body was all at once letting out a two-month sigh and saying, I can finally sleep. I went from laughing and smiling and trading good stories to an immediate and overpowering need to lay down and sleep, despite it being only about 7.30 at night. I tried my best to observe the stars as they looked so vivid and magical. They also looked backwards and different. It occurred to me that I had never actually seen the stars from the Southern Hemisphere before. I could see the Southern Cross and an upside-down version of Orion. It was simultaneously fascinating and disorienting. But despite these new and wondrous experiences, I just couldn't keep my eyes open. I would feel myself falling asleep while standing up, even while talking. In all of my endurance adventures and through hiking, and even my recent 50-mile ultra run in Vermont from a few months prior, I had never felt so completely exhausted. I told my friends that I had to go, stumbled back to my hotel room, and laid down. I was asleep in seconds and slept more soundly and deeply than I likely ever have in my entire life. I slept for 12 continuous hours and woke up more refreshed than I could have possibly imagined. So the long story short here is that living for over two months in the coldest, driest, and harshest place on earth is extraordinarily hard on the human body and mind. The following day, I picked up a cheap rental car in order to start my adventures. One of the positive side effects of the 2008 economic crash 
was that New Zealand was still recovering, and the exchange rate was highly favorable for the U.S. dollar. This meant I was able to secure a rental car for just 20 bucks a day, although I did struggle to adapt to driving on the left side of the road. I headed to an area near the southern Alps of New Zealand to a town known as Wanaka. From there, I would head out to hike up to a high mountain trail known as the Cascade Saddle Track. It would be on this hike that I would learn very quickly about the intensity of the New Zealand sun and would get burned quite badly on my exposed hands and legs. I also learned that the South Island of New Zealand has a larger population of sheep than it does humans. This hike was overwhelmingly beautiful and also cathartic and had me climbing up to a high mountain pass where I could look down on the expansive, dark glacier. It felt good and peaceful in the warm summer air, and I felt ready to head down to the more difficult Stewart Island. From this point on in this episode, I will read more or less directly from my trail journal that details my time on the Northwest Circuit Track, beginning with my morning back in Wanaka. Day 1 I went into Wanaka's town center this morning for some breakfast and to check my email at the internet cafe. When I did finally head out of town, I left with the intent of spending the rest of the day and night in Queenstown. The drive to Queenstown took me down a winding country road and before long I was cresting a hill overlooking the town. As I pulled in, my expression somewhat dimmed. The town center was absolutely jammed with traffic and loud tourists dressed in golf pants and safari hats, all fighting to be the first in queue for their lattes. I struggled navigating through all of the roundabouts and got more than a few horns honked at me. I stopped by a couple of hostels hoping to see a few younger backpackers and only managed to find more people dressed in polo shirts, drinking fancy beers and chuckling at how unsophisticated the hostels were. Needless to say, I felt really out of place. Too many people, with too much money, and too fast. I dropped everything and all of my plans for Queenstown and headed straight for Invercargill a day early. In the end, it turned out to be the right move. I got a nice quiet room at the Southern Comfort Hostel, the same place I'd be staying tomorrow night with Elizabeth, and then explored the town. It was much quieter and more laid back than Queenstown. Tomorrow, I will catch up on my backlogged emails and then get ready for a week on Stewart Island. Day 2. Sitting on the grass out front of the museum in Invercargill, I'm now waiting for the intercity bus that's carrying Elizabeth to town. I spent most of the day today at the cafe and walking around in the local parks. It's just so nice to see this much green. I was able to successfully book a hostel room for tomorrow night on Stewart Island, so we'll have a place to stay after the ferry drops us off and before we set out on the tough Northwest Circuit track. Our ferry to Stewart Island is set for tomorrow afternoon. Day 3 Today, Elizabeth and I spent the morning taking care of some last-minute shopping in Invercargill, given that the few stores that are located on Stewart Island are both limited and expensive. We drove the rental car down to the town of Bluff from Invercargill and had a few hours to kill before our ferry, so we drove up to the observation point in town and took a day hike down to a scenic overlook 
of Stewart Island across the Favot Strait. Bullwhip kelp moved with the waves below, making it look like a giant squid was swimming by. At about three o'clock, we made our way to the Anchorage Pub for a quick bite and enjoyed some excellent toasties sandwiches and chocolate frappes. We figured this would be our last chance to spoil ourselves with really good food for a while. Before we left, the bar owner gave us permission to park our rental car behind the pub for free, as opposed to the ferry lot for $30. This had me a little nervous, given that it was a rental car, but ultimately, we took them up on the offer. The ride over on the ferry took about an hour and was relatively smooth. The waters were calm and we were able to enjoy the scenery across the strait. When we pulled into dock, we headed up to the hostel and secured our room. After we settled in, we took a stroll down to the small community of Oban, the only settlement on the island, before eventually calling it a night. It was really nice to just take an easy stroll around a quiet town, knowing that we were about to start a six to eight day hike through muddy and rocky terrain. Before going to bed, I sat for a long while out on the deck trying to spot some southern hemisphere stars before finally turning in. Tomorrow, we hike. Day four. Today was an absolutely awesome first day of hiking. We started out with a road walk around Horseshoe Bay. Our hope was to make it to the Port William Hut for lunch and then push on to the Big Bungaree Hut. Both Elizabeth and I are used to big mile days, but the Northwest Circuit, however, is not like a typical U.S. hike. We were told to expect long days of low mileages where kilometers pass by like miles. When we registered our intentions with the park office, they said trying to do the track in six to seven days would be a tall order, so we made sure to bring a little extra food just to be safe. The walking to Port William Hut was extremely well graded as this part of the track is also part of the Raikura Great Walk. We arrived at the hut right at lunch and took a long break sitting on the grass overlooking the ocean. Following lunch, we made our way along our first real section of trail, and it was definitely much more rugged. When we finally came out on Big Bungaree Beach, we were greeted by a beautiful scene. Sunshine, waves crashing, and enormous rocks towering up near the shore. After pitching our tents near the hut, we spent the evening walking the beach and exploring some nearby caves. The sand flies were quite a nuisance, but as long as we kept moving, we were okay. I stayed up for a long time that night at the picnic table near the hut, admiring the ocean and clear night sky. It rains almost every day on Stewart Island, and I knew having such a clear night was a true gift. Day 5. Today was a long and difficult day. We originally had thought about completing a side trip up to the island's highest point on Mount Anglum, but opted against it once the rains kicked in. The morning hike over to Christmas Hut turned out to also be our first taste of the island's infamous mud. We slogged through it trying our best to avoid it, but gave up quickly once we realized it was futile. We pulled into Christmas Hut right as the sky opened up with a massive storm. We eventually opted to push on to Yankee River Hut once the rains eased up a bit. It was a solid 12 kilometers to reach that hut, and with it already being 2 p.m., it was going to be a late night of hiking. 
For the next five hours, we made our way, undulating and sidling along until we finally reached the hut just after 7 p.m. As we were soaked to our bones and with no one else in the hut, we opted to stay inside in one of the bunk rooms. The hut was split in such a way that it had two separate sides, meaning we each got a side to ourselves. We cooked up a quick dinner and went to bed early. Being so exhausted and chilled, neither of us felt like staying up any later. Day 6. Today was the toughest day of our hike yet, but so absolutely worth it. The 10-kilometer stretch to Long Harry Hut was exceptionally difficult in the morning with some very tough sections littered with thick roots. It reminded me a lot of southern Maine. We made it to the hut just after noon, and as we were resting, we heard a helicopter flying overhead. At first, we thought it was a rescue helicopter, but soon realized it was just dropping people off when it landed in the grass right in front of the hut. We bantered for a bit with the occupants of the helicopter, but with another 9 to 10 kilometers of tough hiking still in front of us, we bid adieu and pressed on. As we rounded Cave Point a few kilometers later, we were greeted by our first kiwi bird. It was standing right on the trail and seemed completely oblivious to our presence. We watched it for a long time as it poked at the ground looking for insects with its long beak, and then eventually it just wandered back into the woods. When we reached East Ruggedy Hut, it was bustling with other hikers. We decided to push on to West Ruggedy Beach a few kilometers ahead to look for a spot to camp that was more secluded. What we found was a small cave tucked up into the rocks just up from the beach. It was a perfect place to set up a camp. It would mark one of the most incredible moments in all of my hiking adventures. I will pause the journal here for a moment to mention that this cave is also detailed in Chapter 2 of the Treks to Nowhere companion text. Day 7. First thing this morning we watched as a Cessna 182 landed right on the West Ruggedy Beach. It was a rather interesting way to start the day. The hiking for the day again proved very taxing. We stopped for lunch just shy of Ruggedy Pass, and we were both in somewhat grumpy moods at the time. Early afternoon also proved quite difficult, and the messiest and muddiest sections of the entire trail came just after Waituna Bay, knee-deep in places. The day did end on several high notes, however. First, we had an amazing ridge walk just past Hellfire Hut for several kilometers. On our descent to Little Hellfire Beach, where we decided we would camp for the night, we noticed a tarp set up over what appeared to be a makeshift shelter. It turned out to be a hunting shelter, replete with old sleeping pads and a cooking table. We affectionately dubbed it the Pirate Shack and made it our home for the night. I sat down in the small creek in front of the shelter and washed off all of the mud that had caked onto my legs. It was really quite satisfying. Later, we walked around the nearby beach and explored a few more caves. I spent some time running in and out of the ocean and even had an albatross following me for a bit. That night, we watched a perfect sunset over the beach before retiring. I decided to fold out my sleep pad right in the pirate shack while Elizabeth set up her tent nearby. Tomorrow, we have five kilometers of beach walking along Mason Bay, as well as a boardwalk stroll in the Chocolate Swamp. 
It really sounds like something out of a fairy tale. Day 8. Today was our first high mileage day, but it was fairly easy walking for a change. After a quick up and down over Mason Head this morning, we had an extended but easy beach walk along the Mason Bay. We made the turn at Duck Creek and found Mason Bay Hut about 30 minutes later just before lunch. As with the previous shelter, it was bustling with other hikers and there were several tents set up and people scattered all around. We took some photos of a tui bird and headed out after a short lunch break. The afternoon hiking that followed was simply fantastic. We strolled along flat areas located more internally on the island and over miles of wooden boardwalks overlaying swamplands. We eventually rolled in to Freshwater Landing Hut early, cooked up our dinners, and in the evening we shared stories from our respective AT through hikes while we played card games for hours. Tomorrow, we're hoping to complete our hike of the track and make it back in to Oban. Day 9. Today was a difficult day of hiking here on Stewart Island, but we were determined to make it back to a soft bed and a hot shower. We spent a good portion of the morning moving along over rolling terrain on fairly difficult trail. When we made it to the north arm of the Patterson Inlet, right at low tide, we decided to hike across the mudflats rather than through the woods. We were told the previous night that this alternate path is only possible at low tide, but just to be careful when trying to find our way back to the trail on the other side of the bay. Walking across the low tide flats was so much more of a unique experience to remember than just moving around on more of the same old rocky and rooty trails. Luck was ultimately on our side, and after our mudflat traverse, we found our way back to the trail with ease on the opposite side. After a few more kilometers on the trail, we hit the junction with the Raikura track and the North Arm Hut. Immediately, the trail became more well-groomed. We ate a quick lunch and then eagerly bolted back onto the trail. At this rate, we expected to hit town by 3 p.m. We finished the last two kilometers of road walking into town and ended up at the park headquarters right where we had started several days prior. We took a requisite finish photo and then got a room at the Stewart Island Backpackers Hostel. We found a small wood-fired pizza pub and each ordered our own large pies. Tomorrow, we ferry back to Bluff and will head up to the town of Tiano to start the 40-plus mile Kepler track. This Northwest Circuit track lived up to its reputation. It was incredibly difficult, but absolutely worth it in the end. It was also one of the most remote hikes I've ever done, and it brought with it a sense of isolation that was so unfamiliar. One thing's for sure, I was glad Elizabeth agreed to hike with me. It was nice having the company. Today, over 15 years after completing this hike, I still carry such vivid and specific memories of the experience. It truly was one of the most transformative and remote treks I've had across my many years of adventures. There was just something so surreal and captivating about this hike. It almost felt as though we were in some kind of undiscovered and faraway land, the first to see its majesty. 
It does bring a genuine smile to my face thinking back to that day in my childhood when I first discovered Stewart Island on that map, knowing that I have now experienced it so intimately. And it was just as I imagined it would be. Remote and beautiful. And that, my friends, is the story. Thank you all for following along as we revisited this trek to nowhere, looping around New Zealand's isolated and remote Stewart Island. In the next episode, we're going to lighten things up a little bit and revisit a rather fun and quirky triathlon of sorts that I carried out in 2016 while living in rural Vermont. Take care, everyone, and be safe out there. (laughs) 